Welcome to IP Frequently. IP Frequently is brought to you by Dominion Harbor Enterprises and is sponsored by IPedia. IPedia, innovation clarity that provides real, actionable patent intelligence. Join our hosts, David Pridham and Brad Sheaf, advancing the issues of intellectual property. Hello and welcome to another episode of IP Frequently. I'm here as I always am with my good friend, personal confidant, and a man who happens to be the father of his own children, David Michael Pridham. How are you, sir? Some would say a man about town. Many would, actually. Others Many wouldn't. Would. A others bon vivant. Wouldn't. Others wouldn't. Well, there are some who wouldn't. But I would. And it's nice to see you back. Thank you. From your uh, trip overseas. Correct. Hunting the Templars in the French countryside, my friend. And it's something that our listeners really don't know about you, is that in all of your spare time, you're not at home with the family. You're not down at the church praying. You're not working on Ipedia. You are in France... Hunting the Templars. Hunting Templars. Templar treasure, my friend. Isn't easy to do because they're dead. And there is no Templar treasure. But other than that, that, it is nice to be, you know, in the French countryside. Let me ask you this. Have you done any of that role-playing while you were over there? I don't. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at role-playing. I have seen some videos that would beg to differ, my friend. Well, I haven't. On some of those sites that we don't mention on this podcast. Not a good role player, but I know some who are. Um, some who have actually played a lot of role-playing video games, like Mark Lemley. Oh, correct. And it's funny that we would be talking about Mark Lemley because we are about Like dogs of to, war. Like dogs of war. Is that what is he plays? Hounds of war, of war? Giraffes of war? Oh, he plays that safari game. He loves that. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. But I know he co-authored a paper with Kent Richardson and Eric Oliver called The Patent Iceberg. And I'm going to say we're going to have a chance to talk with both Kent and Eric. Well, let's see what they have to say, Brad. Let's do it. Hey, as I mentioned, we're excited to have both Kent Richardson and Eric Oliver with us today. They're of the law firm, not surprisingly, Richardson Oliver. And they are also the co-authors of a recently published paper, The Patent Enforcement Iceberg. So that was uh, Kent, Eric, and Mark Lemley were the three authors of that paper which has been published on SSRN. And, and to my knowledge, guys, it hasn't been published elsewhere. Is there some other place folks can find it or primarily on SSRN? We're um, submitting it to law journals in February. So it, it'll take a while before it gets published somewhere else. So SSRN is the best place to pick it up for the, the next while. Okay, great. So for folks who are interested in, uh, in looking at the paper for themselves, that's the Patent Enforcement Iceberg on SSRN. Lemley, Richardson, and Oliver, if you guys want to... We'll shoot that out on the Twitter account. And we can do it on the Twitter account. Yeah. On the, uh, and perhaps even on the InstaFace. InstaFace. Okay, yeah, very good. We'll do that. Love social media here at IP Frequently. So, guys, you want to talk a little bit about uh, Richardson, Oliver, and kind of where you guys are in the, in the patent business? Yeah, sure. So, we, um, we're, we're a law firm. We mentioned that earlier. And we help... Um, sort of arm the unarmed a lot of times. So uh, unicorns in Silicon Valley grow really fast. Their portfolios don't keep up. And we help them buy patents. Um, And we help them with patent strategies. So we'll help them figure out what the return on investment from a particular patent strategy might be. Um, And then we also help uh, larger companies defend against other companies asserting patents. Um, As part of all the... Uh, activity that we work on, we track patent buying and selling in the, in the market. 
And we also have an interest in understanding where assertions are happening, where they're coming from, and who's uh, having the biggest problems. Okay, great. Well, I, I think that sets the table nicely for a discussion of the paper. We did want to start off as what we think is is a um, this kind of an opening question, let you guys talk about this a little bit and kind of set the tone for where you were trying to come from in this paper. So um, would you consider, and I, I think your answer or your description of where Richards and Oliver is and kind of the work that you do helps answer this question, but would you consider yourself to be sort of the, pro-patent or anti-patent in terms of the system? In other words, do you believe patent systems are good for the global economy and the U.S. system in particular is good for the U.S. economy or not? Oh, so I, I think we're both fans of the patent system. Absolutely. Big, yeah, big fans. We think that it's important. We think, and we see it from a spectrum of companies, right? Com little companies to big companies. Um, and we have enough experiences where without the patent, the company would have been dead. Okay, so in, in view of that, so fans of the patent system, believers in the underlying tenets of the patent system, i.e. being able to uh, have innovators monetize without being manufacturers and, and vice versa, to be able to manufacture without necessarily innovating through licensing or acquisition of the intellectual property rights. What, what was your objective in doing the research and then writing the paper? Well, so I'll tell you what, back up a little bit. So Mark Lundley and I were sitting in his office and we were talking about things that were you couldn't do, right? So what's one of the things that would be exciting to be able to do, but you couldn't do? And, and the, the obvious paper to write is the one that aggregates all the licensing deals um, in, in the world and you could see how much people are paying in, within industry sectors, right? That was, you know, we were we were just spitballing at what the most imaginable and, or unimaginable thing was, because we know we're not gonna get that. There's no way you can get that information from uh, companies, at least in the US. So yeah, why, why, we said, why, hey guys, what, just on that point, why not? Why shouldn't that be uh, the goal? Why can't we get that information? Well, actually, so that that's a, that's a great tangent. Um, to go down because you can get this information in Europe. So that's the first thing. I think that's fascinating. The government makes you give it up. Um, but this is America and Americans aren't going to give it up very easily. <laughs> um, but, you know, the interesting part- things we all love about America, right? Can we be in agreement on that? I give it up pretty easily. Well, that's a, that's a <laughs> different topic though. Yeah, that's, that's a different podcast altogether. That is an entirely different podcast and not necessarily an American trait, but that's- Something else. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead, guys. So, so I think from the perspective of it, it, Mark said it best. He said, "Look, all everybody wants everybody else to give up the information. They just don't want to give it up for themselves." So then, then I said, "Well, why don't we see what you know?" Because I was in-house general counsel. I said, "What things would I be more comfortable providing that I knew was aggregated?" that really wouldn't ruffle feathers, but would allow us to start to extrapolate out into what the costs in the system are. So we came to the conclusion that we could get people to say what their inbound assertions were, right? And that's where it started was, if you were going to estimate what people ultimately were spending, if you knew what their inbound actually was, and again, the inbound assertion here is, 
anybody who shows up saying that you're infringing a patent and you need to pay them. Um, you know, that actually allows us to start extrapolating up. And we, I, we did this as a, a transect, is, if you're familiar with the term. Uh, basically, we didn't try to survey the world. We tried to sample companies that we thought would be responsive to the, the request for the information and really just take a sample of companies. So, um, so let's, let's start there for, for just a second, guys, because, you know, on page 10 of the paper, it talks about the survey was worldwide. But I think if I've got the numbers right, that you wound up surveying um, 60 some odd companies and that only 30 of them then responded. So, I mean, do you think you were able to meet the objective of kind of unearthing? I mean, just playing off of the title of the paper, you know, finding the submerged portion of the iceberg to the extent it exists. You think you got there with only canvassing 60 companies and, and only getting 30 responses? Well, the, the worldwide was really the worldwide assertions that you received. That's, that's so you what were, we're talking so, about. So your, your 30 respondents received, assert, maybe we should define an assertion. So what, what, what did they get? So they, they, these 30 companies, had some sort of inbound communication with regard to patents from around the world. And so maybe yeah. defining an assertion would be a good place to go. Right. So some somewhere in the world, somebody hit you with a patent. So they came in and said, you're infringing and you need to take a license or you well, should. The respondents were all U.S. companies. So um, theoretically, they hit them yeah. with U.S. patents. I, I, I In our experience, it's almost... Uh, uh, well, actually, in in the data set, it's a hundred percent of them would have been hit with U.S. patents. Okay, so thirty uh, companies get well, hit with U.S. Well, patents well, from asserters around the world. I mean, it's possible that within the family of the U.S. patent, there were foreign relateds, right? I mean, that's possible, I guess. Yeah, there might have been some European one, and we didn't European ones. And we didn't have that as a, a question yet. I mean, this was: can we even get people to respond to the question? And so you got you got 30 companies ranging in size from under 100 million. So I think your first cutoff was at 100 million or less top line revenue and then on yeah. up. And so within that, within those tiers of, of revenue for the companies, you got 30 folks to respond to your, it wasn't yeah. even really a survey. Didn't you say in the paper that you actually personally reached out to them? I mean, it's just- Yeah, it was, it, like I said, it was a transaction. You talked to them, right? Yeah. Right. It was a better way to say it is it was a transect. We we walked through our Rolodexes and contacted people that we knew at what companies we thought would be relatively representative and asked them to participate. That's how. Um, so so it, it was not the, the to suggest that it was some global survey is not an accurate view of things. It's much more of a we wanted to see if we could even get answers to the questions, how many people were participating. I think actually we did pretty well reaching out to 60, 70 companies and getting 30 of them to respond. I think that's actually pretty great. And, you know, I think from that perspective, it is at least the first time that we're aware of that public information about this is is being presented. So we think that's interesting. Well, so was anything done to weed out you know, so some of these companies that you're just not going to want to have participate in a survey like this. So, for example, 
you know, the companies that are intentionally going to skew the results that are anti-patent, companies like Newegg and to some extent, even companies like Google, um, who, uh, you know, and, and again, taking a step back, our view is that these aren't assertions, right? These are actual negotiations that should be encouraged. But there are a lot of companies out there in the tech space who want to discourage all um, uh, licensing activity unless it's their own patents. So what did you do to, to take out or, or to, to remove companies that would skew the results? Well, and actually, you're presuming there's a skew there, actually. Why, why don't we look at some of the numbers and then come back to that question? Because I don't know that actually I see a skew in this data set. And I'd like to see your response to some of the, the pieces of data in here. But I think it's uh, it's pretty fascinating, at least... You know, some obvious things that happen in this are you make more money, you get hit more often, you know, general rule of thumb. But if you look at the people who make the most money, there is a huge disproportionate number of uh, inbound assertions uh, against those companies. And the but number of... But doesn't that really yeah. depend on what the technology sets are that you're talking about? I mean, a company well, like Apple or a company li like Google where they have you know, dozens of products and they have literally tens of thousands of um, areas of technology where patents are stacked one on top of the other, um, of course they're going to have more inbound assertions than you know, one-trick pony companies with one or two or, or ten products or, or even, uh, in this day and age, retailers who are selling in a certain space. So isn't it all technology-dependent? Um, well, you would think that, but there are some north of uh, $50 billion companies who are not what I would consider one-trick pony companies who don't get hit very often, and then there are other ones that get hit all the time. And it's fascinating because you, based on just revenue at the peak, you wouldn't be able to tell. You no, would I think, think that's the point that, that David was making, right, is that it's technology dependent. I mean, I don't think anybody is surprised that those companies that are making cutting edge, theoretically innovative products that rely upon ideation and innovation would be the ones that are hit with uh, the most uh, assertions, if you will, right? I mean, I, I so I, I obviously, and you guys caught to this in the paper, where there's, there's no question of you, you know, hiding this, but you had, you know, 68 companies, you got 30. Now, I think it's interesting from your perspective and, and ours as well, that it's tough to get patent data out. I think it's interesting that you had personal relationships with these 68 companies and only 30 of them would talk to you. I mean, I, 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 just, I, I find that interesting. I mean, I, I'm not saying that pejoratively. I, I agree with you that getting half of them to talk to you is is good, particularly in the patent space. No one wants to talk about this. And I think that's a takeaway from the paper is that even when you know the company and even when you're anonymizing um, the respondents, the results of negotiations, the patent owners, the actual number of assertions, whether or not there was any agreement actually reached. I mean, you anonymized the vast majority of the data. Still at that point, only 30 of the 68 companies you had a personal relationship with were willing to talk to you. And so, I mean, I, I think that is an interesting insight into how opaque the patent licensing business really is. But even in talking to those companies, I, I, I don't know, at least I wouldn't be surprised to find out the companies that make, you know, sort of the high tech consumer products 
would be the ones to see the highest level of inbound licensing opportunities or assertions, as opposed to even a $50 billion company that's, you know, either not consumer product based or not high tech. And I just, you know, they, they, they probably don't have the same level of, of, you know, innovation that has been previously patented. But you can tell that from just looking at the litigation dockets, right? I mean, you can look at a company like Kimberly Clark, 25 billion plus in annual revenues. They're not going to be hit with patent litigation, your words, a tenth of the time that Google's hit with similar revenue. I think Google north of 75 billion, but still big companies, right? Um, because of the nature of the technology and the products they're selling. Right, so you can you right. can tell or, that from the litigation docket. You don't need a, a study with thirty oh, I agree companies filling out surveys to determine that. Yeah, I agree with you. So I think I think let's let's be clear. I wouldn't put it at the tech. I would put it at how um, the because I think there are some there were there are clearly some big tech companies who get hit pretty rarely. And it's mostly because they're back end hard to see what's going on in their technology and it's complicated and frankly, you know, not very consumer facing. And I think it's interesting because that actually, those people also stand on the shoulders of giants. Right? I mean, that that's... That, did that come as a surprise to you? I mean, because again, you know, we're all in the same business, right? It's tough to assert a patent if you don't understand the way their technology works. Now, we do that probably more often than others because of what we do for a living and the fact that we've got, you know, a relatively sophisticated approach. We can figure things out that are not apparent just by walking into a Best Buy and looking at something. Um, but again, I, I don't imagine you were surprised by that. No, no, and but it, and and frankly, it's what we see because we uh, review claim charts all the time, right? And uh, it's just really hard to hit something that's hard to see and complicated. I mean, if I need a PhD to figure it out, you know, I, I had a client did forward error correction and communications. This stuff is PhD level stuff on a regular basis. Guess what? It's just too expensive to figure out if somebody's doing it, right? But that it's a massive amount of technology built into that. So what's the takeaway from that? I mean, well, I, I think the takeaway can't be don't do consumer products, right? Well, yeah. So I think the interesting thing is, even at the highest revenue air, uh, levels, there are a very few companies who get massively disproportionately hit, and disproportionate from the other people in their category. I don't want to talk get into the how much innovation. That's you know, this is just reporting data, right? So when you look at that category. You see people who have hugely different uh, risk profiles. And I think that that's an interesting thing to think about and what the implications of people who have that kind of risk profile, what are they going to do differently than people who make a similar amount of money but have a substantially lower risk profile? So I think that's an interesting question, right? What do you do if you're one of those companies? And what do you do if you're not one of those companies? And so I, I think part of your paper, well, don't, I, I'll rephrase that. So one of the th one of the issues that you raise in the paper is I mean, you you draw a distinction between um, NPEs and you draw a distinction within NPEs between patent assertion entities, which are you know labeled within the paper as trolls, and no, universities, I, et cetera, et cetera. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
I don't believe we said the word troll. By the way, I'm ex-Rambus. Be careful, my friend. Well, yeah, no, I mean, the, yeah, you, so you, you say... Um, so at the top of page four, right? Or five. Is that page five or four? Yeah, yeah also, also five, it says, AKA larger yeah, patent right. assertion entities, right. AKA right. patent right. trolls. No, you're right, you're right. It, it, that, is, that is what I'll call them. They're right. I, I take it back. And then we've got, you know, there's a footnote here. RPX data reported by Chen shows that trolls accounted for 62%. So there's no, I mean, there's no other description of those. So I, I guess it is what it is. But I thought it was interesting. So to kind of to that point about the large companies. So within the NPE, and it's not further broken out to my knowledge, at least I didn't find the paper. You guys can tell us. 130 of the 166 that you turned up in your survey were against those companies. Um, with the largest revenue, right? So, again, we've talked about why that's not surprising. Um, so only 36 of the NPE assertions were against small companies, right? Now, in, in this case, small means leads less than 100 million. So, I mean, it's you can be a fairly good-sized company. So out of the, the entire way, survey of results in 2015, there were 36. So do you, do, does the... You know, as you get later in the paper, it talks about sort of this tax on the economy that is caused by these assertions. Um, do you really find that that level of trolling, I guess, uh, is causing uh, a tax? So just one comment on that. I, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask that we change that footnote 20 to make it clear that that's their term that they used for trolls, the RPX used. The rest of them are embedded within the context of. Uh, um, the papers themselves. So we'll make sure that that's a clear that RPX is referring to them as trolls. Um, so I think from the perspective of, you know, how, what kind of impact, I think the most important thing is this, if you, if we are correct in being able to extrapolate and we put a lot of caveats in there that this is an interesting exercise in extrapolating, we're not suggesting that this is the final number. But by extrapolating out, you get a much lower number than predicted. I mean, substantially lower number than predicted by some people on the impact on which is sort of what we'd experience. You know, yes, it's it's painful for small companies on occasion to have to deal with these things, but on a global impact or or on a high tech impact basis, it's annoying and they don't like to have to deal with it but it's also not as big a problem as it uh, might have been 10 years ago from their perspective that would be one conclusion that i would draw from this data well i i think that's interesting so your co-author professor lemley you know seems to lean in the direction of not being you know, not not being a fan of certainly the way that the licensing business takes place, right? I mean, he's, to my knowledge, he's typically a defendant's, when he's practicing, he's typically a defendant's lawyer. I think he just filed kind of a test mandamus in the Eastern District of Texas. I mean, was, was your collective take in the paper about licensing, patent licensing, that it is, given the cost, given the apparent cost of patent licensing, and as you guys well know, having done this research, it's all over the place, right? The the, the research on how much it act, the patent licensing actually costs, particularly in relationship to R&D spending or in relationship to 
you know, top line revenue or earnings by companies, et cetera, et cetera. What was kind of the, the your overall collective takeaway about whether or not licensing as an approach to monetizing one's intellectual property is a viable and useful part of the U.S. economy or it is simply a drag on the U.S. economy? You know, so we didn't take it down that far. We first remember where we started, which was could we get even close to estimating what the number might be? Um, and that was that was the first question. I, I think from our perspective, it's not the drag that some would purport it to be. Um, and I think that's an important takeaway from all of this. I also think that some people substantially are it differently than others. And so their motivations are going to be different and their actions are going to be different. And I think that's something that's interesting to think a lot about. But if you think about what we tried to do, we tend to be, we're going to bring the data forward and try to pose a framework for interesting questions like that one. But we didn't go to draw conclusions about it. Um, I think the other thing that was interesting around those companies when we backed out their numbers from the analysis and redid the analysis, you know, the overall impact was substantially less than the, the average impact with those two companies. So, you know, you, there there was, the numbers are lower and, um, and not as extreme as you might as you would have heard some people say. Because I, I mean, according to, you know, in the, in the, in the conclusion section of the paper, um, you guys have perhaps you, the, the, the quote here from page 26, at least the way we downloaded it, it says perhaps 0.5% of the United States economy is a reasonable, even small price to pay for a patent enforcement system. So you had derived that number out of looking at a hundred billion per year. Um, as being the total cost, right? So I, I think, again, what was interesting to me in reading the paper was the original premise that there was going to be more what, what we would refer to as soft licensing, right, where you're not litigating as opposed to hard licensing where you are, and that, that being the difference between what's below the water and above the water. And just the difficulty you guys had, even with personal connections and trying to get people to talk about that. And then secondly was, you know, kind of, okay, so what does this, what does this mean? Right. What does this mean, given that you know, I don't think anyone in this business would argue whether you feel like it's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't think anyone would argue that the pendulum has swung <laughs> way over in the direction of being, you know, anti-patent licensing, right? Between the AIA and the results of the patent trial regime that it instituted and the way that Mayo and Myriad and Alice have come out and, and you know, starting with um, eBay even for injunctions is that it's been it's become increasingly more difficult to actually monetize your innovations and so um, did you did you derive any any findings about whether or not that's good or bad for the economy or you know whether or not that the, the fact that patent li or or even if patent licensing is in fact a drag on the uh, so I think actually, let, let's uh, back up to the start of the question first, right? So, um, or the, the statement, you know, you said you got about 30 out of 60 companies uh, 
participating. So let's think about what that means to participate. You had to be able to answer a number of questions. So, you know, let's look at these questions <clears throat> briefly. They are questions like, how many inbound assertions did you have in the world over a, a, a one-year time frame? And then you had to add, answer how many of them were NPEs. You had to answer how many of them were sort of more than five uh, assets and less than five assets. And you also had to answer how many of them came with claim charts. Um, so when you think about those questions, it turns out actually lots of people don't even track that. <clears throat> Right, so that's, it's not that they didn't want to answer, you couldn't even get the answer because they don't track it. So that's an interesting part of all of this is, you know, a fair number of companies just don't know what their own inbound actual counts are. So does that indicate that they, that it, they just, I mean, that they don't care? It's not that big of a deal in their world? I would think if something was, was cutting significantly into my earnings, I would know chapter and verse how that was happening you would think that's the case and that's not always you know it, it's not as simple as you would think it's also another one is people track it differently than uh than the way we we're asking the question and then another one is you know people are busy so we ask the question and you know some of them are just like look we can't do it other ones had policies about never disclosing any of the information and it had to go up to the general counsel to get the approvals. Why is that? So we, uh, you know what? It's just some companies have like we will not tell anybody anything. It's just the standard policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think oh, that's yeah. interesting. And I, I, I mean, I, I don't even get the, you know, the, sort of the distinction you guys start to draw between. I mean, you call everything assertions, and that's fine. But the distinction you try to draw between litigation and non-litigation and sort of the confidential nature of the resolution in non-litigation and drawing that back to litigation and distinguishing the two. I mean, the reality is well, the, the problem- Non-litigation is unseen, right? So how would you actually, we don't even, we, we didn't know what the distribution looked like, how much of this stuff, because most of what we deal with is unseen. It's unseen right? in both cases, though. It's unseen in litigation yeah. and non-litigation. The only thing right. you know well, about no, the parties in the back of the always, suit. Litigation's always seen. We we no, know no, we can. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, so actually, so why, that's a good, so interesting point. Well, why why wouldn't it be seen? So now we're both confused. Yeah. Why, well, I, I'd, I'd love to know the 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 res, certainly the patents in suit and the parties are seen, but nothing else is seen, and it's primarily because large companies that are taking licenses are demanding that, right? So I, I guess that's where I'm confused. It, it, it's sort of a distinction without a difference. Both are highly confidential. Uh, both are uh, resulting in us not getting to any of the material terms. I mean, even if um, all of the soft, i.e. non-litigation licenses were reported in some journal to the same extent litigation settlements were reported, i.e. the parties and the patents ensued, nothing more, Nothing about the, the 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 license that was ultimately taken. Nothing about the terms. Nothing about the price. Nothing about the parties. You know, i.e., affiliates. The whole portfolio. I mean, what are we talking about here? The the problem is well, that's, that's that a great, at the end of the day, exactly. you've got this you've got this black box, right? And the black box applies to both litigation and non-litigation resulting licenses. 
So um, it seems to me if the argument is about transaction costs inherent with litigation, great. That's a discussion we can have on both sides. But, um, you know, to label all this stuff assertions and then to cherry pick 30 or 60 or 100 companies in a Rolodex that includes companies that Lemley is associated with, I just wonder about the results that we're getting here. Well, so actually, let's let's back up. We agree. We would much rather have all the resolutions information, but we're not going to get it. We just won't get it from those companies. Well, why, doesn't Mark, why doesn't Mark write about that? Why doesn't Mark write an article? I mean, because his companies are everyone from Newegg, his clients, Newegg, um, Google. Well, why doesn't he write an article? And we'll be the first ones to come out and support it that says, from here on out, every patent license agreement that Google's at, Google enters into, they will put up on their website and they won't sign the agreement unless they do. I mean, there is no NPE or patent troll or whatever he wants to call them that would not agree to that if the results at the end of the day were along the lines of their licensing program. So why wouldn't Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft all require that? And then we don't have a problem anymore. Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to touch it because you know what the problem is. I'm not going to change the world. We're just trying to get chip away at this problem. I'm not going to well, go out there and but, try to. But are you? I guess are you is the question, right? I mean, I, and again, I know Mark's not on the call, and I'm not trying to pick him out. But I, I think that type of a, that type of a position that someone could take would be that he could take in an article or in a in a in a you know journal would be very compelling. I, my problem with this is it doesn't seem to to get at any demonstrable conclusion. Just that you know we need more data when. And it also seems to attach a negative connotation to soft licensing, which is what I thought we were all trying to encourage with this just sort of destruction of the ability of a small company, why, why a company to litigate its patents anymore. Why, why do you say negative? I'm sorry, I, I missed that. You're calling everything an assertion. I mean, my God, if, if, if one of our inventor but clients sends a letter to Newegg or to Google that says, hey, guys, we have this patent portfolio that you've been using for a number of years and we think you should license it, that's, you that's know, that's- what, what do you want to call it? What do you want to call it? I, I call it soft licensing. That's what I call it. I call it no, a license no, no. offer. That's no, what I call it. Soft licensing is not an industry term. Assertion isn't an industry term. Litigation is an industry term. What are you talking about? A neutral industry term. Assertion is a neutral industry term? Yeah, I mean, no, I, would I, just, I, I would just go with a, I would just go with a licensing opportunity, and then define it as either being in litigation or out of litigation. I, we right? call it we call it soft licensing. That's yeah, that is I mean, a that's, that's an industry it. term. I've been doing this for fifteen years. That's what we've always called it, and we encourage clients I, I, to do it. I mean, we write letters to Apple, to Google, to these companies all the time, and and say, look, we have a client that would like to license, doesn't want to have to go through litigation, but I mean. This, this does cast a very wide net and seems to disparage those type of efforts and at least characterize them as assertions and, and make them analogous to what you would do if you filed a complaint. Well, actually, one of the companies differentiated uh, invitations to take a license from assertions in the data. And, and the, it didn't impact the numbers significantly. I want to highlight one other thing. What we were trying to get at is literally just how much could you extrapolate from external visible litigation to what was hidden? And we'd seen people say, well, 80% of it is hidden. And we're like, that seems like a big number based on our experience. 
So let's go ask. Well, it turned out it was much less than 80%, substantially less than 80%. For, you know, for some, some companies, it was only 20% or 0% was hidden. So there isn't this big tax on, the, on overall industry, or at least for a big chunk of industry that we sampled, that really has no big hidden patent assertion problem. Right? I think that's interesting. Whew. Well, the, you might think that that interview sort of ended somewhat abruptly. It's like Johnny bar the doors. But that's not true because we're going to break this into two parts. Why don't we break this down and bookmark it and then pick up where we left off? As long as we stay on the top of the waves, I'm 100% with you. We'll schedule a part two for this. We'll bring in the rest of the interview. And that, my friend, will be a whole separate episode. Do we need to talk to anyone, get any approvals for this part two? Maybe we should take a survey. We could take a survey. I know at least 68 people, probably 30 of which would respond. Yeah. Yeah, let's do Should we do let's that? Let's do that. Take a survey. Let's see how it turns out. Yes. And then if we get, you know, we'll have to anonymize it. Yes. But depending on the results, we'll do part two. Yeah, I mean, the other thing we have to keep in mind are the time constraints. I mean, you, you again and I have talked about this. Uh, we do have to go to the prep meeting for the Clam Fest. It's going to take three days next week. Um, we also have that hot air balloon vacation we've been planning for quite a quite long time. time. You're not getting out of that, my friend. No, I'm. in fact, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe get a picnic basket up oh, in the sky. You know how that is. That. I do love that. Yeah, the beautiful. The whole thing is a basket. You stand in a basket. It's like you're a picnic. It's almost like you're a basket case. Uh, you are a basket case. And you know what? Can I, can I just tell you this? And, I, and I, again, I don't want to be I, – I take seriously – your love of hunting the Templars. Couldn't the you do it couldn't you do it better in a hot air balloon? I'll have to give that some thought. Yeah. I will. I'll have to give that some thought. Because you could, you actually can see fairly well from there. Mm-hmm. It's until, better than a drone. Until the balloon collapses said. and you just whisper. Yeah, I mean if you have a drunk guy with the propane and all yeah, that, then you're dead. Yeah. Or he's a Templar. He could be and a Templar. Some here. of those Templars are still alive. Remember they had those Confederate soldiers who were still in the foothills? And they lived up there for like four or yeah, five thousand years after over. the Civil War. Yeah. Two thousand years after the Civil War was over, they were still, still there. coming out of the hills. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. All right, well, this has been an episode of IP Frequently. When we get the results of our survey back, we'll see about part two of the patent iceberg.